Father, it's good to be still and know that you are God. That you have promised to gather in a place like this where your people have gathered to to know you and to worship you. We are thankful to know that you are a God who draws close to his people. That you do not command us from afar, but commune with us through your spirit. We are thankful, Lord, that you call us to do this very thing, to pray and to sing and to proclaim and to seek and to remember. We know, Lord, that this is not possible apart from you in your spirit doing a mighty work here this morning. And so we ask that you would be gracious with us, that you would help sinners saved by grace overcome our fleshly desires to be absent of mind, to be tired or distracted. You would help us instead this morning to rightly worship you as the God that you truly are. We want you to show us your face this morning, Lord, for in your face there is the fullness of joy. And we know, Lord, there is power to renew hearts for this upcoming year and for the rest of our lives, indeed, for all eternity. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us godly resolutions in 2019. That we as a people would rightly evaluate our lives, look at 2018, and ask ourselves, in light of your word, how how might we live to your glory better in 2019? And then, of course, we ask, Lord, that you would give us the power in your spirit to do it. We don't want to be a people that make vain resolutions that cannot be kept. Instead, we want to glorify you more and more with each passing day. So we ask, Lord, that you would show us yourself today and magnify yourself in our presence. We ask it always for your glory. In Christ's holy name, amen. Can I be the first to wish you a happy and blessed new year? 37 hours, we're 37 hours or so, 36 and a half hours. Beforehand, I'll be asleep when the new year comes in. I don't know about you. I don't wait for any ball dropping from the sky. <clears throat> if you do not have your Bibles open to First Chronicles chapter 16, please do so. If you cannot find that, you can turn to Psalm 105, same passage. Um, we like to preach in the context of the Word of God. And a brother asked me this morning, why not Psalm 105? Because Psalm 105 is not in the context of the return of the Ark of the Covenant, which is what I want to draw from today. So as we, as we look to 2018 passing and the horizon of 2019 peaking at us even this morning, uh, many of you are or have already begun to make plans for the upcoming year. Um, that's that's normal. As those created in the image of God, we are a plan-making people. We look forward to what we want to do, how we want to change, and so it's not contrary to your nature to not plan to make changes, especially in light of things that did not go so well or things you want to change from last year. There's nothing wrong with that. Many of you will want to approach your work differently. Some of you, your marriages, some of you, your child rearing, others, school, some of you, your bodies. You want to do it better in 2019 than you did it in 2018. And and oftentimes, we call these resolutions a commitment to do or not do something better in the future. According to one pollster, 30% of millennials in 2019 will make at least one New Year's resolution. 30% of millennials will do that, 28% of Gen Xers, and the trend line is very interesting. Only 18% of baby boomers will make a New Year's resolution, and those in the silent generation, 70 and older, 14%. And I, I think that we know why. The older you get, the more apt you are to realize these resolutions don't hold a lot of water. They don't really work. You've made them year after year after year, and year after year, you haven't held them. You say, well, why make them anymore? I'd like to know the statistics for those 85 and older. I bet you it's like 2%. Wisdom and time reveal that most 
most New Year's resolutions fail. Even the secular psychologists understand this. According to research, willpower is insufficient to hold a New Year's resolution. In fact, one noted psychologist said, by January 8th, 25% of all New Year's resolutions made on December 31st will be forfeited. That's eight days. That's not very good. And by year's end, 90% of all New Year's resolutions will be completely given up on. Now, that's a fascinating statement given the fact the culture tells us that mankind is inherently good and we only periodically fall short of our goodness. And yet, if that's true, how do we explain such terrible statistics when it comes to making and keeping resolutions to do and be better? You can't unless you understand the nature of sin. Doing the destructive things that we do not want to do and not doing the good things that we ought to do defines the human existence in light of the fall. In other words, it is because of our sin nature that New Year's resolutions, no matter how good they are or how necessary they are, it's in, because of sin that we don't keep them. That's why it's so hard for us. But this doesn't have to be, and I pray it's not a pessimistic sermon for you. It doesn't mean that you ought not want to or strive to change for the glory of God. But it does paint a very realistic picture that we need a Savior, that we need someone to come in and not only redeem us from this mess of sin, but empower us to be better people, to be godly people. I like Albert Muller once said in his weekly briefing, our most basic human needs cannot be met by greater resolutions. He said they can only be met by redemption in Christ. And that's a hallelujah amen if you know Jesus. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the answer you want for 2019. It is your answer for hope and it is your answer for power to make godly resolutions and then by grace in the spirit actually do them. Now as a believer you might be saying, I'm in Christ. I'm hearing what you're saying. I've been saved by grace for years. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. But I resonate with what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7. The very things I do not want to do, these things I keep on doing, and that which I do want to do, I don't do. How do I, how do we overcome this devilish mess of trying to make a New Year's resolution and yet deal with the power of sin? How do we do it? How do we in 2019, how do we decrease the evil that we are doing and increase the good that we want to do? That we might, in 2019, live a life as salt and light that brings God more glory and honor than we did in 2018. In other words, the question for the believer is once justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, once forgiven completely and brought into the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how do we live out our new natures? How do we live as born-again people so that God might be honored and we might be immeasurably blessed? There are several passages that I could have gone to to answer this, but First Chronicles 16 stood out because it's a song. And I think it's appropriate on the, on the brink of 2019 to think about how we sing unto the Lord, and it will be one of the points that I want to address. It's a song that David wrote just after the Ark of the Covenant had made its way back into Jerusalem. And again, God was dwelling with his people. And in the song, David offers several imperatives. We can call them resolutions. Things that he tells the Israelites, these are things you ought to be doing in light of God's presence now being here. How we ought to worship. And there are several. So for time's sake, I'm only going to point out a few in the first few verses, verses 8 through 13. And by God's grace, I want to encourage you to hear these resolutions for you, for us as a church, and then by the Spirit of Christ, actually do them in 2019. None of them are going to be extreme physical resolutions that you're going to, you know, run a triathlon or you're going to lose 100 pounds. I'm not asking that. These are biblical resolutions, things that we as believers ought to be doing every day, all the time, anyway. So there are five, and please don't panic my son said, five points, and I said, yeah, five points, five hours, buckle up. No, I, I won't do that to you. Praying, singing, glorying, seeking, and remembering. They're simple, but they're life-transforming if we can get them. 
Five resolutions from this song. Praying, singing, glorying, seeking, and remembering. Number one, praying. The Ark of the Covenant, for those of you who do not know what that represents in the Old Testament, it was the physical presence of God amongst his people. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines in 1025, 1024 B.C., and then quickly returned after they realized that having the Ark in their presence was destructive for them and their false god Dagon. It had returned to the house of Abinadab shortly before the reign of King Saul. And once David, Saul's successor, became king, he ordered that the ark be brought back to Jerusalem from Kiriath-Jerim and be put into a tent that David had built for the ark of the covenant. In other words, it was an historic moment. God's physical presence represented the ark returning to the city of Zion and communing again with his people. And the, the occasion was marked by singing and celebrations, and gifts were given by the king to the people. But above all else, it was marked by worship. And David, as king, commanded the people to rightly worship God's return, his presence amongst them. And in light of this glorious event of the return of the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, David offers us several imperatives or resolutions we want to grab onto as well because God is in our midst. And the first one he highlights, which shouldn't surprise us, is prayer. Look at verse 8. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. David says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. They were to give thanks for all the blessings that God had bestowed upon them under the reign of King David. They had peace and prosperity from foreign invaders. There was incredible abundance in the land and amongst the people. But most importantly, the ark had returned. And so they could rightly worship God. The tangible presence of God had returned. And so David's saying, he's here. Call upon his name. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people and do it with a thankful heart. Now, I would argue, my friends, that through the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, we have every reason, if not more so, to pray to God this day and every day of 2019 with thankful hearts. To call upon his name day and night and to tell others of his wondrous deeds. Under the kingship of Jesus Christ, the greater David, your greatest enemies, the power of Satan, sin, and death, have been overcome once and for all. And through the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, you have been blessed with all the blessings of heaven. You were saved and brought back into the sweet fellowship of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the saints saved throughout human history. And you, like Jerusalem, have experienced the return of God to your once sinful and rebellious heart. According to the word of God in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, lives in you, guiding you, encouraging you, rebuking you, comforting you. If that's true, my beloved, and we believe it so, then every day is a day of prayer. Every day is a day for God's people to be praying Harry Garropy of the Salvation Army, he rightly said, a prayerless life is a powerless life. A prayerful life is a powerful life. A prayerless life is a powerless life. A prayer-filled life is a powerful life. Faithful Christians have understood this for centuries, that one of the primary means of grace that we have to draw near to God, to commune with God, and to walk this life well is prayer, to give thanks to God, to call out to Him daily. I wonder how many of the 90% of resolutions failed because we strive to do it by sheer willpower would be successful if we strove to do that in the power of Christ through prayer. How many of our godly resolutions would actually be fulfilled if we spent more time praying about them than simply exercising our own will to do them? James 4.2 you all know this passage. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. 
You do not have because you do not ask. And then James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Go to God in prayer and he will draw near to you and answer your prayer in perfect accordance with his holy will. Prayer has to be part of the DNA of our church. We must be a praying people. If we have any expectations of individually or collectively growing in the holiness and righteousness of God in 2019 and we do not pray, then we are fools. We are fools. If you have been having difficulty jump-starting your prayer life, your individual prayer life, I want to encourage you to join us every Sunday morning at 9.30. We gather as a church to engage in what Pastor Kurt has affectionately identified. I love this, the prayer furnace. This is where we come together as a church and we pray and we stoke the fire and we put in the wood and we fan the flame that we might be God's people in a matter most pleasing to him. So if you struggle with prayer, come and hear it modeled. Come and hear it taught and then come and pray. So the first thing, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let us resolve to do, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, 2019, let us pray. Let us not be people who pray, but praying people, that it defines who we are, amen? All right, good, you're with me. Number two, verse nine, we are to sing. David says, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Now, some of you who are not musically inclined or do not care to sing much, you might find this an odd resolution to be singers to God and to one another. But you must know that song and singing has always defined God's people. We have been for centuries, Old Testament and New Testament, a people who sing, sing, and sing unto the Lord. The Bible is not a song book, but there are over 185 songs in the Bible. Battles, coronations, funerals, cities being sacked, seas being split in two. You can find songs in the Bible for all kinds of occasions. And here, David, they were singing and dancing as the Ark of the Covenant was brought back up into the city of Jerusalem. The daily exercise of prayer for you individually, and I would argue even more importantly, we corporately, is essential to the life of God's children. We are commanded. You know you're commanded to sing? Sing, sing, sing unto the Lord. It is a one another command. It's not just singing in your car, and it's not just saying I'm going to sing whenever I feel like singing. It is singing to one another. These mutual commands, one another. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says... Verse 19, sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Now, I don't imagine any of you in 2019 will pick up your phone, call a brother or sister, and say, hey, you know what, let's, let's get a cup of coffee and let's exercise Ephesians 5.19. You come on over to my house, I'll sing to you first. And you can sing to me, bring your guitar, it's going to be fantastic. I don't think that's necessarily how it will work out. There's nothing wrong with that. That would be glorious. But that is unlikely how the one another singing will transpire in 2018. In your homes, during your family worship, sing. In our Bible studies, our home Bible studies that will begin at the end of January, we're going to be singing together. And most certainly, when we gather as a church, we sing. We sing on Wednesday night. We sing on Sunday mornings. And we do that to tell of his wondrous works. One of my most precious moments over the past 20 plus years of ministering to people, especially those who are sick and dying, was just last year when we were ministering to Mary Hunt. She was already under hospice and she was homebound in her bed, and she wasn't speaking much. And so, I'm going to try to say this without becoming emotional. Brandon and Brandon brought his guitar, and Joshua brought his violin, and Lori and I went, and the four of us, and we went and we sang hymns to her. And she wasn't able to, to sing with us, but she was moving her lips to the hymns. Um, and it was 
one of those moments in the pastoral ministry that you realize how incredible God is in loving people through song. It was an extraordinary moment to see God blessing her through song. Through song. Why songs? Why singing? Why does David call the Israelites, sing unto the Lord? Why does Paul command the church to sing praises to God? There are so many reasons, but I'm just going to give you one for the sake of time. Songs, it's poetry put to music. Poetry, not formal prose, put to melody. And there's something about music And that's how God made us. God is a musical being. We are musical creatures. There's something about music that has the power to take eternal truths and penetrate into parts of the heart that other means of grace cannot. And you know this. We just had a chance to sing Jesus, Thank You. And the gospel in that song is so rich and so deep, I could go for 20 minutes and say the same things, and it won't touch you like that song will. Because poetry when coupled with music, enables us. Now listen, it enables you to feel a truth. It takes it out of your head as a cognitive meditation, which you just toss around, and it brings that same truth into the depths of your heart that you might feel it and know it with all of who you are. During this Christmas season, were there not songs that you heard, hymns that were sung, even on the radio that brought you back years? Memories, some of you, very good memories, right? And some of those lyrics weren't even that profound, and yet they penetrate. They go to places that other means of grace cannot go. Songs enable us to feel deeply and enjoy passionately who God is and the works of God. They press the reality of the gospel in where it needs to be. They press the great redemption story in places where it needs to be, where it has transformative power. David knew that. Paul knew that. God's people have always known that. I pray that you come here and you feed off the proclamation of the gospel when I preach. But I got to tell you, my favorite time in the worship is singing. There are times when I want to just keep singing. And I know I'm supposed to preach. But there's something about the power of God's word being sung. And it gets to places in my heart that I can't get to otherwise. I cannot tell you the number of times over the past 17 years I've sat in that chair and I thought, I can't do it, Lord. I cannot get up and preach your word another Sunday. I can't do it. I am so unworthy. You are too holy. I am too sinful. People won't listen. There will be no change. And this is what happens in my mind. And then you sing. You sing. And God, through your song, blesses my heart. And I hear him say to me, Keith, when you are weak, I am strong. I hear him say to me through your song, my word does not return void. You preach no matter what. You keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep preaching my word. Whether people are listening or not, he says, I will be glorified. And that comes through your singing to my heart. And I don't think I'm the only one. I believe several of you have been sustained week after week by the singing of the saints to your heart. What a grace. What a grace. All right, number three, we are to be a praying people. We are to be a singing people. And David says we are to be a glorying people. Look at verse 10. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So David instructs the people in light of the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. He says, let your hearts rejoice and glory in God. In other words, when we talk about glorying in something, we're finding deep satisfaction, deep joy. There, we, we glory in all kinds of things today. We glory in our work. We glory in sports teams. We glory in our children and our grandchildren. David's saying here, Glory in his holy name. Find your deepest satisfaction, your deepest joy in who God is. His holiness and his power. Glorify him in that. His goodness and his mercy. His faithfulness. His love. His kindness. Glory in that infinitely more than anything else. And just like the songs had the ability to penetrate our hearts 
glorifying in God emanates from the heart. It's, it's praise. It's adoration. I pray it's why you're here right now. I pray it wasn't just a Sunday morning, but this was an opportunity for you to gather with God's children and glorify his name and glory in his holy name. Two weeks ago, most of you know that my first granddaughter, Abigail Ashley Booth, was born. And we had a chance to, to be there and to be present and to see her within an hour of her birth. I was in equal awe when my three boys were born. There's something about life coming into the world that sets a man or woman on his heels rightly. And it should. Every time I hold her and I look into her face and I look into her eyes and I look at her lips and the flawless skin, I'm overwhelmed with the glory of God. Overwhelmed by it. That he is the one who made her. He knit her together in Sarah's womb. And any being powerful enough to create human life so magnificent, so beautiful, so life-giving and receiving, like Abby, it's too much. It's too good. It is too great and too magnificent. And so I have to, when I look at her, and I look at life that God has created, I have to agree with Romans chapter 11, verse 33, when Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's the only right response to the glory of God manifest in our lives. But why would David say, look at verse 10 again, why would he say to the people, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice? That had to catch you when you heard it being read. As sinners, shouldn't our hearts be filled with terror, not joy, in declaring God to be holy, knowing that we are sinful? Shouldn't the real presence of God coming back into Jerusalem, and if we believe the real presence of God is dwelling with us now, shouldn't that cultivate in sinners fear and dread? Certainly, the Israelites would have remembered what happened 20 years prior at Beth Shemesh when the Ark of the Covenant returned from the Philistines. 1 Samuel chapter 6, God struck down some of the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside of the Ark of the Lord. I got to pause. What were they thinking? Let's get a peek. They knew better. He struck down 70 men. And so the men at Beth Shemesh asked this question, and it is the consummate question in light of God's holiness. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can? David called the people to glory in God's holy name because he understood that God is not only holy, but he's merciful. He's not just a just God, but he dispenses grace upon grace upon grace for those who seek him. You see, the covering of the ark is known as the mercy seat. And it was upon the mercy seat that the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur would sacrifice the blood of an animal to cover the sins of the people. And he would do that to atone and pay for what we deserve to pay for. So David understood that God was both holy and merciful. And he understood that this ark provided access to God in a way yet unknown to him. But he knew God. And so he said, seek after God in his holiness. And God will give you a heart that is to rejoice. David looked forward to that which has already taken place. He was on the other side of the cross he knew that God would send a Savior to do the unthinkable. We know it to be Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, as the high priest, entered the holiest of holies and he shed his blood upon the mercy seat over the law to cover our sins. And he did this great work that we might draw near to him. That we might glory in his holiness, not in fear, not in dread. That we might draw near to him, Hebrews 10.22, with a true heart in full assurance of faith that we might have confidence to enter the holiest places by what? By the blood of Jesus. David says, come near to God because the Savior will pay your way. Because Jesus Christ paid for our sins in full, we not only receive forgiveness, but we are brought all the way in to the holiest of holies. 
not sin, not death, not eternal damnation, but back into a right, loving relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through the work of the cross. And so David can say, and we can say, that we ought to glory in his holy name because we have forgiveness in Christ. If you are outside of Christ, then it should be dread and it should be terror. And I would say to you today, repent and believe that you might have the covering as well. My beloved, every moment of every day, there is sufficient revelation through God's creation, through his word, and through your own life experience to magnify and glorify in God. For you to be rightly overwhelmed, you don't have to hold a newborn babe. Just open your eyes and getting another day of life is reason to glorify his holy name. But I would argue that the truth of the gospel itself, that God the Holy Father would send God the Holy Son to pay for our sins on the cross, this is the fundamental and primary means by which and reason for which we ought to glorify in him. The gospel of grace which you have in Christ every moment of every day, and you'll sing about for all eternity. That he would shed his blood on the mercy seat to forgive sinners like us. That's sufficient to glory in God today. That's sufficient to glory in God in 2019. And according to the Bible, the gospel of grace is sufficient to glory in God forever and ever. How do I know that? Revelation 5, 9, listen, One day you're going to join the four creatures and the 24 elders around the throne and you will be doing this in a loud voice saying, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever. Do you sing that in your heart now? Do you sing it now? Do you glory in God now? We are to be a praying people. We are to be a singing people. We are to be a glorying people. We are to be, number four, I hope you're with me still, a seeking people. Verse 11, David says to the Israelites, God says to Cambrian Park Baptist Church, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. You say, well, Pastor, you've taught us that God is omnipresent. You've taught us that God dwells in our midst every moment of every day. So why, why should we seek someone who is always here? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What, why is David t- telling the people to seek God now that he's back in Jerusalem? And why, why would we have these same teachings in the New Testament calling us to seek God when he supposedly dwells inside the heart of every believer? To seek God is to seek his presence. Some of your translations, the NIV, that word presence in the Hebrew can also mean face. So you want to seek God's face. What does that mean? It means to seek intimacy with him. To to see his face is to know him and to be known by him. It's to be in a right, loving relationship with him. And so when Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, that's a covenantal promise. And you want to hold on to that. He says, I'm never going to leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you in the fight. I will encourage you. I will comfort you. I will walk with you. I will stand with you. I will fight with you. He said, well, why then are we to seek him? Because you also know, and you've all experienced that in a sense, God is not with us. Not because he has left us, but because we have left him. In a sense, there's a t- there are times in our lives when his presence is not well known. The Ark of the Covenant had been returned to Jerusalem, and yet David calls the people to seek after God's presence continually. Why? Why? Because just like the Israelites, we know that God's powerful, trusted presence, now listen, for many of us is not our moment-by-moment experience. Right? Who he is, His power, His presence in our life is not, for many of us, our day-to-day, moment-by-moment experience. There are seasons, and for some long seasons, where we're not mindful of God or the things of God. We become neglectful. Little to no prayer, no singing, minimal glory given in His name, giving no thought to God, neglecting to trust in him in the big things and the little things. And the result is what? His power, 
His majesty, His beauty, no longer captivate the deep recesses of our hearts. And as a result, our daily lives no longer reflect the deep glory of His name. Our sin nature is always seeking a place to hide from His greatness. He doesn't leave us ever. He is present. He is present now, but we are quick to depart from His glory and His majesty, and we do not have that daily consciousness that we ought. So David says, seek, verse 11, seek the Lord and His strength and seek His presence continually. You say, well, what, what, what does that mean? You're doing it right now. When you gathered here this morning, instead of stay, staying in bed, you said, I'm going to seek the presence of God because I know He gathers when His people are there. I'm going to seek the presence of God by gathering with the church, and I'm going to be singing with them and praying with them. In the Old and the New Testament, this seeking is always a matter, listen, of the setting of our hearts and minds upon God and the things of God. It is the conscious, willful act of the believer saying, today is the Lord's. My heart and mind will be directed to Him, His will, His work, His character, my role in His story. Colossians chapter 3, Paul said it beautifully. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he said in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. My beloved, that should be a convicting verse for us. How much of your day or week or year is consumed by the things of earth? How much? Physical struggles, relational struggles, economic difficulties in the home, things that are taking place in the world, fear, anxiety. David says, don't be foolish. Those things will always be until Christ comes again in glory. Seek God. To not seek God is to set your mind on autopilot. You know what that's like. That's just going through life the ebb and flow of life, and being subject to all the circumstances of life. I know this is a crude example, but I was at the park yesterday with Joshua, and there was a man there with three dogs, and he was throwing a ball to the dogs. Two of the dogs were very well behaved. They listened to the master's voice. He called them back, and they would come, but there was one dog, and, and he was an Irish setter, and he just had his nose to the ground, and he was just smelling and smelling and smelling. He couldn't get enough smell, and he kept saying, come back. Come back. He didn't have a word. That dog was not listening to him. He was going through his life smelling instead of listening. And I thought, oh my goodness, so much of that is us. We just go through life, circumstance after circumstance, instead of hearing God's word to us to seek him and to know him. So important is this. Paul actually has this prayer for the church in Thessalonica. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3.5. May the Lord, listen, may the Lord direct your hearts to, love, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Do you hear the prayer? The prayer is that the Lord would direct our hearts to love Him. That's a powerful prayer. We know it is a gift of grace, but we also know, according to Scripture, that it requires you, me, our church, actively, consciously seeking Him. So where do I do that? Well, you do it here on a Sunday morning. We'll do it when we take communion together as a body. You do it every time you go to the Word. God is revealed in His Word. The great creation, fall, redemption, restoration story is in His Word. When you go to the Bible to know God, you're seeking God. Every time you go to your knees in prayer, you are seeking communion with God. Every time you gaze upon creation and you magnify His glory by saying, you are too good, God, you are seeking Him. You seek Him every time you see grace in other people. You seek Him every time you gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ in true biblical community. You do that. We are to seek Him in our work, our rest, our pleasure, our pain. We are to do it constantly, continually, so that our hearts and minds might be captivate Him every moment of every day. He leads, He directs, He's our God. We are His people. And in so doing, verse 11, there is strength. Seek the Lord and his strength. 
My beloved, if you feel weak, I would argue you're probably not seeking the Lord. He strengthens his children. Strength to his people, those created and saved for his purpose. Strength to overcome what? Remember how we started the sermon? To not do the evil that you don't want to do and to do the good that you do want to do. Strength to actually fulfill the resolutions that God has placed upon our hearts if we seek him. All right. We are to be a praying people, a singing people, a glorying people, a seeking people, and last one, a remembering people. Do you remember the first four? We are to be a people who remember well. Look at verse 12. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and judgments he uttered. Verse 13, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So King David, on this momentous day when the Ark of the Covenant had returned to Jerusalem, stops the people and he says, remember God. He's now with us in our midst, represented in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember his wondrous works. And they would have immediately thought back to the promises that were made and kept to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And they would as a people, as an oral people, they would have remembered well the great work that God did in bringing his people out of Egypt and out of the slavery of Pharaoh, the miraculous delivery that took place. And they would have remembered certainly the 40 years that God loved and sustained his people in the desert. They would have remembered under Joshua coming into the promised land. They would have remembered God's provision in distributing the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. They would have no doubt remembered his deliverance again and again in the times of the judges from those who came to oppress them. They were recalled his wondrous works. The people would say to themselves, this is our God. He has sustained us by the power of his hand and therefore he loves us now and he will love us to the end giving them great confidence in God's love. And I would argue, my beloved, that one of the primary reasons, now listen, that we will fail to fulfill many of the resolutions we make for 2019 is our spiritual amnesia, that we do not remember well. The the flesh is quick to forget who God is and what he has already done. The flesh is quick to forget his specific and special love that he's placed upon you if you're in Christ, that he called you by name out of the darkness and into his son. And yet we forget that. And yet that is the most glorious thing that's ever happened to us. Better than marriage, better than children, better than grandchildren, God calling you out of the darkness in Christ is to be remembered. The consequences of sin is that myopic vision we have of life. The failure of fallen creatures to remember we get so bound by space and time that we have the tendency to think and move through life with a very narrow view. It's day in and day out. It's circumstances and not hope. It's flesh and not spirit. We think and we feel and we experience moment by moment. And that's why When things are good, you're happy, and you think that your walk with God is good. And when things are bad, you're sad, and you think that your walk with God is not good. To overcome being tossed back and forth, the Bible calls us to what? To remember God, to remember who he is, to remember what he has done, to remember who you are in him. Psalm 77, 11, I love it. I will remember the deeds of the Lord, and then the psalmist says, yes, I will remember the wonders of old. Again and again, reminding yourself of who God is and who you are to him. And we must do this, I would argue, to be the effective Christians that God calls us to be in Christ. And that is remembering your true identity. If you have been born again by grace through faith, who you are is not defined by your circumstances. 2018, 2019, however many years God gives you, does not define who you are. Your identity is Christ. And therefore, we are to remember above all else His work on the cross and the promise He sets forth for His children. And that's why, in case you've ever wondered, why every Sunday now we take the Lord's Supper. We take 
bread that represents his broken body. We take juice that represents his spilled blood. And every time we do that, we read from passages like 1 Corinthians 11, the call to remember it as a covenant people. Oh, that's right. Christ died for me. That should be my broken body, but it wasn't. It was his. That should be my spilled blood, but it wasn't. It was his, and therefore I am forgiven and I have life. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, you're going to hear it in a moment from Pastor Kurt. In the same way also, he took the cup, Jesus, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he said what? Do this as often as you drink it in what? In remembrance of me. What does the table say? In remembrance of me. Jesus is saying in the most powerful and compassionate way that he can to us. He's saying, remember that I gave my life that you might live. Jesus is saying, remember, I went to that cross and I bore the full wrath of my Father that you might be forgiven and brought all the way in. Jesus is saying, I want you to remember today and every day that you've been born again by the power of my Spirit. Jesus is saying, you are no longer bound by sin. You no longer have to live 2019 as a sinner. You are saved by grace and powered by the Holy Spirit to be what? A holy people, a royal priesthood. How? Set apart for God's glory. Jesus is saying, remember the promise of eternal life. In the darkest moments, when the pain is most severe, when you say, I can't do another day, I can't get out of bed, I can't do it, Lord, remember the promise you have in Christ. This is not it. Oh, many of our lives are blessed. They are so blessed. But this is not it. This doesn't come close to what is promised to you in Jesus Christ. We are resolved I pray to be a praying people, a singing people, a glorying people, a seeking people, and a remembering people as a body. Look at verse 13. As offspring of Israel, his servant, as children of Jacob, his chosen ones. David is talking to the nation of Israel. God speaks to his bride, the church. He understood these resolutions were to be exercised by the people together. So I want to close my sermon with this thought. Your strength, your ability to make godly resolutions and keep those resolutions in 2019 will be contingent upon your fellowship with one another, your participation in the life of the body of Christ, a local body of believers, praying, singing, glorying, seeking, and remembering together in the local church. This is God's design. You're not to take these five resolutions and say, I'm going to go home and do them all by myself. Do them at home, yes, but they start here. David got that. The Apostle Paul got that. Jesus got that. That all these things that were called, and I would argue commanded to do, are to be done first and foremost, collectively. This is a communal endeavor. This is one of the reasons that we gather on Sundays to do what? Well, we sing and we pray and we seek God and we glory in God and we remember God. We do all those things on a Sunday morning, not by chance, because that's what the Bible prescribes. The New Testament, as you know, is laden with one another commands. They're called mutuality commands. How we're supposed to love one another and grow in one another. We're to serve one another, encourage one another, bear with one another, comfort one another, confess our sins to one another, forgive one another, stir one another up, bear with one another, and it goes on and on and on. But you know, it's really hard to have one another love if you're never here. How do you want another like this? How do you pray and seek God and remember like this? How do you sing to your brothers and sisters in Christ like this if you're not present and faithful and active in the local church. It makes everything make no sense. So maybe our first resolution as a church for 2019 should be to be present, active, and faithful as a body of believers so we can learn how to pray and sing and glorify and seek and remember God together before we run home and do it on our own. My beloved, I I do pray And I will continue to pray, and I ask that you would as well, 
that 2019 would be a year marked by God for this church. A year unlike any year since 1952, that we would see things here take place that are only explainable by the gospel power. We would see lives being transformed, people being made more into the image of Jesus Christ, that we would see people coming here, the unsaved coming here, hearing the gospel and being saved, that we would see family members and friends hear the gospel from our mouths and repent and believe and put their faith in Jesus, that we would see this church have its right impact upon this community as we pray for them, as we minister to them, as we love them. I I pray, if you've been here a while, that you are not discouraged, that you don't say, you know, we've been praying for that for years, Pastor, and I don't see any major movement. What you do not see is what is taking place in the heavenly realms, that God is at work, and he's doing a work here, and I have great hope that he's going to continue that work in 2019 through sinners like us. Amen? All right, let me, let me pray on that last one, and then we will take communion. Father, we are rightly overwhelmed that you would call sinners to your Son. That you would equip us to be a praying people. That with all of our hearts, we are thankful, and we come to you seeking your presence. We are overwhelmed that you want us to sing to you. Certainly, you can have better voices than ours, and yet you love when your children sing. We are overwhelmed, Lord, that we can glorify you and glory in you in all that we do. That we can seek you and find you, not as a God of wrath, but a God of mercy. That we can remember you even now as we reflect upon the broken body and spilled blood of your Son. Father, I pray that in 2019 you would equip us collectively as a church to be people who faithfully exercise these fundamental resolutions of our faith. These are not optional, Lord. They are commanded. And how glorious they are when your people do them. I pray, Father, that you would bind us together as a people by the power of your gospel that we would be identified as a gospel-revealing church, and that what binds us together in our love for one another is not our age, it's not our income, it's not our ethnicity, it is the gospel. Father, do that mighty work. Bless us in that way as a people, and bless this community in that way that Cambrian Park Baptist Church might see a church that is so radically transformed by the gospel that they must know more. We ask that you would do this, Lord, for your name's sake. You are worthy of it. Christ is worthy of it. The Holy Spirit is worthy of this glory. And so be gracious in 2019 with us to make yourself known through us. In Jesus' name, amen.